The Extremis Publishing Podcast is endorsed by Heart 200, Scotland's most exciting road trip. Find out more at heart200.scot. Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today, joining us to talk about his five favourite films is Dr Colin Barn, someone who's no stranger to the world of cinema, as many of his books have been looking at popular films from throughout the past few decades. So Colin, first on your selection of uh, films that have influenced you um, is Operation Crossbow, a film from 1965. What is it about this film that's made you admire it so much? Thank you, Tom. Operation Crosbow is a 1965 film directed by Michael Anderson, who also directed The Dambusters, about the efforts of the British military to counter the German V-weapons programme. It's one of my favourite war movies, and one of a number of World War II pictures made by the MGM British Studios at Boreham Wood before it closed down in 1970. Other war movies made at Boreham Wood include 633 Squadron, The Dirty Dozen, Mosquito Squadron and Where Eagles Dare. Operation Crossbow is fairly accurate though, but it gets a few things wrong. In real life, Operation Crossbow was the name given to RAF missions against V-weapons such as photo reconnaissance and bombing raids and not the intelligence efforts to counter V-weapons. In the film, test pilot Hannah Reich discovers a technical problem with the V-1s by flying a version of the craft which is fitted with a cockpit and manual controls. Such a version of the V-1 did exist, but was produced much later in the war as a suicide weapon and was never used in action. Also, the film implies that the V-weapon programme was stopped by a bombing raid on a single underground factory in Germany. In fact, there were a number of such factories throughout Germany which proved immune to air attack. What brought the V-weapon attacks to an end was the advance of the Allied armies across northwest Europe following D-Day, which led to the launching sites being overrun. Apart from these quibbles though, it is a good film. The musical score by Ron Goodwin is one of his best works and the special effects by Tom Howard are impressive, particularly the V1 and V2 launches which look just like the real thing. A genuine V2 was used in the production, supplied by the RAF Museum at Cosford and several Fiberglass replicas of V1s and V2s were built for the film using plaster casts taken from original weapons. One of these replica V1s, complete with launching ramp, 
can still be viewed at the Imperial War Museum at Duxford near Cambridge. Another very impressive sequence is the one in which a Spitfire chases a V1 and tries to shoot it down. This was done for real without any miniature work using a real Spitfire and an unmanned radio-controlled target drone aircraft which was modified to resemble a V1 with a simple streamer to represent the exhaust flames. The worst special effect shot comes towards the end of the movie in a scene in which RAF Lancasters bomb the underground factory. A real Avro Lancaster PA-474 had been used earlier in the film to depict a bomber returning from the raid on Pinamunda, but unfortunately this later scene used rather unconvincing studio miniatures hung on wires. Overall though, the film is an underrated classic, which is largely authentic and features excellent performances from a largely British cast, which includes many British war movie stalwarts such as John Mills, Trevor Howard, Anthony Quayle, Richard Todd and Sylvia Sims. George Peppard also appears as a US Army Air Force pilot who becomes an undercover agent working for the British. Although this would never have happened in real life, Peppard was included in the cast to increase the film's appeal to American audiences. Cliff Robertson was the star of 633 Squadron for the same reason. The film has been shown in British television many times, but has never been released on VHS, DVD or Blu-ray. And of course Michael Anderson is a name that will be synonymous with war movies for many people. What is it about his body of work you feel that has been so perennially popular over the years and how do you feel Operation Crossbow fits into his wider filmography? Well, Michael Anderson directed a number of war films and um, the three most famous ones were The Dam Busters, The Yanksy Instant and Operation Crossbow. And they're all, they all would be regarded as classics. The Dam Busters in particular is probably one of the top war films of all time. And I think one of the reasons that Peter Jackson is probably struggling to make his remake is that it's such a hard act to follow. But of course Michael Anderson is also known for other films. He actually directed a number of science fiction films, people, a lot of people don't know that, such as Millennium, which I've covered in my new book about time travel movies, and Logan's Run. But I think he will always be best remembered for these three classic war films. Now, the second film that you've chosen as one of your five favourite films is a 1969 Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Now, the James Bond series is very long-running and obviously still ongoing, so what is it particularly about this one specific Bond film that has made you want to list it as one of your favourite films? Well, it may seem an odd choice, but Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a film which has improved with age, rather like a good wine. I remember seeing the film for the first time in the Glasgow Odeon in the spring of 1970 and coming out of the cinema feeling very disappointed. 
I was used to Sean Connery's Bond, so I didn't like Lazenby's performance. There was no big underground base. There were no gadgets to speak of. Bond's Aston Martin didn't have an ejection seat. And even Blofeld's evil plan didn't seem that grand. The film was poorly received by critics and it didn't do as well at the box office as previous Bonds. Even Diana Rigg said a few years later on a chat show that it was the Bond film that no one ever talked about. Yet, when I saw the film for the second time in September 1978, when it was first broadcast on ITV, I realised that I now quite liked it, and my appreciation of the film has grown ever since. I've now seen the film on VHS, DVD and Blu-ray, and on the big screen at the National Film Theatre in London. Each time, my enjoyment of the film has increased. What do I like about the film? Well, as is widely known, George Lazenby was not an actor. He was a former model and who had appeared in TV commercials for Big Fry chocolate bars. He'd also been a soldier in the Australian Army and had worked as a car salesman in London. He was chosen purely for his looks and physique. Despite this, I think he gave a very credible performance as Bond. In particular, he excelled in the action scenes as he had a great physicality. The film also has a magnificent musical score by John Barry, which is one of his best. Excellent photography and very good use of real locations. Blofeld's base at Piz Gloria was a real building on top of a Swiss mountain, which was modified by Ian Films. The main alterations were the building of a concrete helicopter landing pad and the fitting of a mechanism to make the restaurant revolve. One of my favourite scenes in the movie is one which was cut from some TV screenings and home entertainment releases. It's the sequence where Bond breaks into a Swiss lawyer's office and cracks open his safe while he is at lunch. It may not sound that exciting, but the scene could almost have come from one of Alfred Hitchcock's movies. There's a feeling of rising tension, which is enhanced by John Barry's score. Is Bond going to get the safe open, retrieve the papers, and relock the office door before Goombald returns? It's a tour de force of editing. The action sequences in the film are extremely well staged and quite plausible, unlike the completely over-the-top stunts in recent Bond movies. And I'm not alone in my appreciation of the film. It's been the subject of a very comprehensive book by film historian Charles Helfenstein, which I greatly enjoyed. Interestingly, Helfenstein wrote just one other book on a Bond film about the Living Daylights, a movie which I also think is highly underrated. Now, as you've alluded to, um, George Lazenby was a rather controversial choice 
in the role of Bond. How do you feel, um, based on his one sole performance in the Bond series, that he compares to other actors who've played the role? I think he stands up very well, actually. I mean, I would prefer his performance to that of Roger Moore, and I think many people would agree with this opinion. He had this great physicality, and he was very good in the action sequences. And this is perhaps an area where Roger Moore wasn't so strong. His approach was more of the English gentleman with a little bit of gentle comedy on the side. Now, the third film that you've chosen is the famous 1971 police thriller Dirty Harry. Obviously a very iconic film, some would say one of the most iconic American films of the 1970s. So what is it about it that you've come to admire so much? I first saw Dirty Harry in 1979, eight years after its release, and was blown away by the film. I was impressed by its grittiness and realism and the brutality of the action scenes. The film has an interesting history. Its origins lay in a, string, a screenplay called Dead Right by Harry Julian Fink and Rita M. Fink about a New York detective called Harry Callahan, who was in the trail of a serial killer called Travis. At one point, the role of Harry Callahan was going to be offered to Frank Sinatra, who was then 55. His age was no problem because Callahan was originally to have been an older man. As some of you may know, at the age of 72, Sinatra was also offered the role of John McLean in Die Hard for contractual reasons, but turned it down. Sinatra considered the role of Harry Callahan, but declined because he'd broken his right wrist during the making of The Manchurian Candidate some years earlier and was left with a potential weakness in this part of his body. As the new film required him to fire a 44 Magnum revolver, which had a tremendous recoil, Sinatra was afraid he might break his wrist again and turn down the part. Paul Newman also passed on the role, as he felt it was too right-wing, while Steve McQueen demurred, as he thought the film was too similar to the action movie Bullet, which was also set in San Francisco, where Dirty Harry was now to be filmed. Eventually the part was offered to 40-year-old Clint Eastwood, who'd made a number of action films and had also starred in an action police thriller called Coogan's Bluff. Much of the plot of Dirty Harry was based on the real-life case of the Zodiac Killer who'd terrorised the citizens of San Francisco and dealt with a psychopathic killer called Scorpio, played by Andrew Robinson, who was shooting people with a sniper rifle. He's eventually captured by Callahan, who tortures him into revealing the location of a young girl he has kidnapped, but Scorpio is then released after the district attorney decides that correct legal procedure was not followed and all evidence is branded inadmissible. Scorpio subsequently hijacks a school bus, but Callahan jumps onto the roof and corners his killer. 
After giving him a chance to surrender, he shoots him dead and then throws his police badge into a lake. One thing I like about the film is that Callahan just does what he thinks is right without really considering whether it is legal or not. He's the ultimate maverick cop. There's one wonderful scene where he argues with the district attorney about Scorpio's rights. When the DA tells him that Scorpio is to be released, Callahan storms out the office, saying that law is crazy. I love this scene because it mirrors my own personal experience of dealing with Jobsworth in local government and the NHS, who are fond of telling you that you can't do this or you can't do that because of such and such a piece of legislation. Four sequels were made, but none of them were as good as the original. The worst sequel was the first one, Magnum Force, which was released in 1973. The problem with this film was that the plot involved a group of vigilante cops who were killing known criminals. Harry discovers what is going on and vows to stop them. Yet his actions aren't consistent with his behaviour in the first film. Logically, you would expect Callahan to support the vigilantes, not kill them. A lot of critics and fans pointed this out at the time. In the second film, Callahan has somehow become a liberal and even got a girlfriend. Apparently, all these changes were introduced by the screenwriter, the late Michael Cimino. They weakened the film's plot, but in the subsequent sequels, the last of which was The Deadpool in 1988, Callahan was his old self, blowing away the bad guys without any thought for the legal consequences. The series of Dirty Harry films were highly influential. Bruce Willis has admitted that his John McLean character in the Die Hard films owes a lot to Clint Eastwood's Harry Callahan. And Lethal Weapon was effectively a higher octane remake of Dirty Harry. There are a number of ideas in Lethal Weapon which are copied from the first two Dirty Harry films. For example, both Harry Callahan and Martin Riggs have lost their wives in car accidents and become bitter as a result. The 1986 Sylvester Stallone film Cobra was also heavily influenced by Dirty Harry and the title sequence in particular is very similar to that in Magnum Force. A sixth Dirty Harry film set in London was proposed but never made. But who knows, with Hollywood's penchant for remakes and reboots, we may see the return of that gun-toting policeman. Now, as you've mentioned, um, there were a number of sequels to Dirty Harry, all of them featuring uh, Clint Eastwood reprising his original role. And it's interesting to compare um, these contemporary roles for Clint Eastwood in comparison to the Western movies that at the time he was so well known for. Why would you say Dirty Harry has come to be so iconic within the canon of 1970s American cinema? I think it remains hugely popular today, and one reason is that Dirty Harry is the exact opposite 
of modern policing. I mean, modern policing is more like social work, you know, considering the criminals as the victim and rehabilitating them, considering the rights of the criminal over the rights of the victim. And Dirty Harry was the complete antithesis of these views. So I think that's why it's so um, popular now and then. The fourth film that you've chosen is Obsession, a 1976 film which was directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, what would you like to say about it? Obsession came about after director Brian De Palma and screenwriter Paul Schrader saw a Vista Vision print of the 1958 Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo in the cinema. Both were very impressed with the movie and decided to make their own film which would be inspired by that Hollywood classic. Obsession isn't really a remake of Vertigo, but it does contain some similar plot elements, namely a middle-aged man finding someone who he believes is a reincarnation of his previous lover. At the end of the original Hitchcock film, it is revealed that both women are the same person, as his lover never died in the first place. Another thing that links the two films is that both feature an excellent score by the composer Bernard Herrmann. Herrmann had worked with Hitchcock in the 50s and early 60s. One of his most famous compositions was the Psycho theme. As is well known, Herrmann and Hitchcock had a blazing row during the making of Torn Curtain in 1965, and the two never worked together again. Furthermore, Hitchcock rejected Henry Mancini's score for the 1972 film Frenzy because he thought it was too similar to a Bernard Herrmann score, and he commissioned a second score from Ron Goodwin. Herman was already an ill man when he did the score for Obsession. After his completing his work on the film, he went on to score Taxi Driver and then died. Most critics agree that it is Herman's score which really makes Obsession special. And Herman himself considered it his best work. He also saw Obsession was the finest film he'd ever worked on. The film begins in 1958. Successful New Orleans real estate owner Michael Cortland, played by Criff Robertson, is shocked when his wife Elizabeth, played by Genevieve Bujold, and young daughter Amy, are kidnapped and held to ransom. Unfortunately, the local police bungle a rescue attempt, and his wife and child apparently die in a fiery car crash. Sixteen years later, Cortland visits Florence in Italy and goes to the church where he first met his wife and sees a young Italian girl called Sandra, who's the double of his dead wife. Cortland returns to the USA with this woman and they plan to marry. But the night before the wedding, Cortland dreams of their forthcoming marriage. During the dream, Sandra appears before him and announces that she is really Elizabeth, 
and that she has returned from the grave to give him another chance to put things right. When he awakens, he discovers another ransom note identical to the one he received in 1959. Cortland draws out all his available cash to pay off the kidnappers, but his evil business partner, LaSalle, who's played by John Lithgow, switches the briefcases and Cortland unknowingly delivers a case full of shredded paper. Eventually, Cortland discovers that both the original and current kidnappings were orchestrated by LaSalle as a way of getting his hands on his money and property. What Cortland doesn't know is that Sandra is actually his young daughter Amy, who was never in the car that crashed and was taken to Florence to be raised by other people. She was brought up believing that her mother died because her father wouldn't pay the ransom. After a struggle, Cortland kills LaSalle with scissors, a reference to the Hitchcock film Dial M for Murder, and makes his way to the airport, gun in hand. He intends to kill Sandra, as he thinks she is merely LaSalle's accomplice and doesn't realise she is his daughter. As Cortland approaches Sandra, the young woman runs towards him, and before he can shoot her, she says, Daddy, Daddy, and puts her arms around him. In an instant, Cortland realises the truth, and the two embrace, their mutual love clear to see in a truly heartwarming ending. Another thing that makes the film so powerful is the photography by Vilmos Zygmunt, who later worked in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Zygmunt used the diffusion filter throughout the entire film, giving it a dreamlike quality. There are also some truly marvellous scenes where Genevieve Bujold plays her younger self through a combination of good acting and camera tricks. In one shot, she regresses and actually appears to shrink. This effect was done in camera by moving the camera and changing the focal length simultaneously. Originally the movie was called Deja Vu and the screenplay by Paul Schrader included a third act set in 1985. In this version, Cortland is jailed for killing LaSalle and is released after 10 years. However, his daughter Amy is now back in Florence in a catatonic state in the very same church which played a critical part in the plot earlier in the film. Cortland discovers that the only way to snap her out of this state is to restage the kidnapping. However, this third act was jettisoned at suggestion of Bernard Herrmann, who felt it wouldn't work. Apart from anything else, it would have increased the running time to three hours. Brian De Palma agreed with Herman's suggestion, but Paul Schrader was very displeased at the alterations. The film was completed in 1975, but wasn't released until the following year. One reason for the delay was that it was, had to be recut. In the original cut, 
Cortland actually does marry Sandra and is seen in bed with her. The distributors were worried that this might be perceived as incest, so the sequence was altered in post-production to make it a dream sequence in which Cortland merely dreams of marrying Sandra. However, I think these changes actually improve the film, and this is one of my all-time favourite movies. And obviously, Brian De Palma later went on to even greater success with films such as The Untouchables in the late 1980s. How do you feel Obsession stacks up against his other work? Well, I like it. I, I feel in a way that Brian De Palma became much more mainstream later in his career. He did very commercial films, such as the first Mission Impossible film and the film you've already mentioned. But I, I rather like his early films, which I think were very, very creative and, and very um, innovative as well. Now, the last film that you've chosen is Aliens, the famous 1986 sequel to horror sci-fi movie Alien. What would you like to say about that? I've chosen Aliens because it's a rare example of a sequel which is better than the original film. The general rule with sequels is that they are usually inferior to the originals, as they tend to be more of the same and often have smaller budgets and poorer scripts. There are a few rare exceptions to this rule. Godfather 2 and The Bride of Frankenstein, for example, are generally considered superior to the original movies. Another example would be Aliens. Ridley Scott's 1979 film Alien is rightly regarded as a science fiction classic. Swiss artist H.R. Giger's design of the various incarnations of the alien was unique and has been hugely influential. The original film was a slasher movie set in space, a finely tuned suspense drama. The easy option would have been to make more of the same, but writer and director James Cameron made what I think was the correct decision by making a completely different style of movie, which was a fusion between a science fiction film and a war movie. And that is what Aliens really is. The tagline for the original movie was, In space, no one can hear you scream. The tagline for Aliens was, This time it's war. Fox studio executive summarised the plot of Aliens in just three words. Ripley and soldiers. And there was no one better qualified to write and direct this film than James Cameron, who had a background in engineering I was also fascinated by guns and military hardware. One thing I really liked about the film was its very realistic depiction of the future military, particularly regarding dialogue, uniforms, weapons and equipment. One inspiration for the military in the film, The Colonial Marines, was Robert Heinlein's book Starship Troopers, which was itself filmed in 1997. In Cameron's Military of the Future, the soldiers, the colonial marines, still carry bullet-firing guns and I think this was the right decision because action sequences involving ray guns aren't exciting 
whereas fights with guns and explosives are. The Marine's principal weapon is the pulse rifle, which fires heavy 11mm armour-piercing rounds and features an underslung 30mm grenade launcher. These pulse rifles were actually created by cladding World War II vintage Thompson submachine guns with a futuristic casing. In a similar fashion, the smart gun was a modified German MG42 machine gun, while MG42s were also used to create the automatic sentry guns. Thompson's and MG42s were used because they had a very bright muzzle flash, which showed up well in film. One of the cliches of science fiction films and TV series is that the alien monsters cannot be killed by bullets. But in Aliens, the colonial marines have weapons that can destroy the aliens. The problem is the sheer number of them, which threaten to overwhelm the troops. Aliens was made on a relatively small budget of $18 million, but it looks like a much more expensive film. James Cameron was very adept at using simple camera tricks to produce effects at little cost. For example, the face huggers were moved by pulling them with fishing line and using reverse filming. And a shot of the aliens crawling above a ceiling space was filmed with the camera upside down, so it looked as though the creatures were sticking to the ceiling. The very expensive-looking armoured personnel carrier which appears in the film was a second-hand aircraft tractor obtained from Heathrow Airport which had various bits and pieces stuck onto it to give it a futuristic look. Overall, this film is a rollercoaster ride of excitement which never lets the viewer off the hook. At the end of the film, Ripley saves Newt and rescues an injured Corporal Hicks plus Bishop. Unfortunately, in the next film in the series, Alien 3, which was released in 1992, it was revealed in the opening minutes of the film that Newt, Bishop and Hicks are now dead. James Cameron was appalled at this because the whole point of the plot of Aliens was that Ripley had to save Newt as her own daughter had died. The general feeling among fans was that the series of Alien films had deteriorated from Alien 3 onwards and that what everyone really wanted was a direct sequel to Aliens featuring the return of Ripley, Newt, Hicks and the Colonial Marines. Back in the mid-90s I read an alternative screenplay for Alien 3 which was published in the magazine Dreamwatch Bulletin and featured the return of the Colonial Marines. Unfortunately, this version was never made. However, a few years ago, I read that there were plans to make a direct sequel to Aliens, which would disregard the events of all the Alien films from Alien 3 onwards. Unfortunately, this proposed film was scrapped. Allegedly, because it would conflict with the Alien Covenant films. But very recently, I read that the project might be back on, 
with Sigourney Weaver returning as Ripley. Will it ever happen? I certainly hope so. But with Michael Bean and Sigourney Weaver now much older, I think that the film will have to be made very soon, or not at all. We'll have to wait and see. Regardless of what happens, I still regard Aliens as one of the greatest science fiction films ever made, and one of my all-time favourite movies. Well, certainly Aliens is often listed as being one of people's favourite science fiction films of the 80s, which is no mean feat when you consider how many science fiction films were made in the 1980s and how popular they were. In fact, it's also a film that you mention in your, your book, Dying Harder, uh, as an example of uh, an action movie made well. How influential do you feel uh, Aliens has been on later science fiction action movies? Well, as you would expect, um, there have been a number of imitations of Aliens. They've, people have tried to copy some of the themes. I've certainly seen a few science fiction films which have been very cheap remakes of Aliens. Some people actually thought that Starship Troopers was inspired by Aliens, but as I indicated earlier, it was really the other way around. The Aliens was partly influenced by Starship Troopers. And it did feature some things in common. The mobile infantry and Starship Troopers were very similar to the colonial marines and aliens, and that was no coincidence. Well, Colin, thanks for having taken the time to join us today to talk about your favourite films. There's certainly plenty of variety in the different genres that you've discussed today. Thank you very much, Tom. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon. If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.